Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. All right, today we're going to talk about forgiveness. Um, and we're going to talk about forgiveness in some fairly extreme situations. But I think we'll also try to explore whether that's the same muscle that we use when we forgive people in, in, you know, in less extreme situations. Um, we have a wonderful array of guests for you today. Um, I want to say before we even get into things that if you have questions that uh, you have or if you have comments you want to make, our number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Let me tell you uh, who's with us. Um, in studio with me is Scarlett Lewis. Uh, she is the mother of six-year-old Jesse Lewis, one of the victims of the Sandy Hook shooting. She's the founder of the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Foundation, uh, which seeks to empower children and individuals with the knowledge and ability to choose love. Uh, joining us uh, also in studio is Dr. Ruth Henderson. She's presented her work on forgiveness before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa and in Germany, where she's created educational programming on the Jewish-German dialogue. And she, she's taught forgiveness courses and workshops on college campuses in New England and in prisons in Massachusetts. Uh, Dr. Robert Enright is joining us from a studio in Wisconsin, I believe. Yes, he is. Uh, he's a professor of educational psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, a founder of the International Forgiveness Institute in Madison, and a licensed psychologist. His books include The Forgiving Life and Forgiveness Therapy. Um, so let's begin by defining our terms, because there are um, a lot of cousins to forgiveness, but maybe they're not the same thing as forgiveness. And, and Scarlett, uh, I'm going to ask you to sort of get us going here. When you talk about forgiveness, what does that word mean to you? Well, it's very interesting because um, I, I think about what I knew about forgiveness on December 13th and uh, having gone to church and school, and I really knew nothing about it and uh, and, and came to a definition that was uh, through a lot of heartache um, but I, I remember giving a talk to at-risk youth. I'm talking about forgiveness a few months later. This is when I really defined it, I think. And um, one man in the back of the room raised his hand and said, well, you're talking about forgiveness. What is it? And then I couldn't think of a Webster definition of forgiveness right then off the cuff. Mm -hmm. So I said, I'm going to have to describe what forgiveness is to me. And I said, I felt like I was attached to the shooter in my case, the man who murdered my son, was somewhat of an umbilical cord. Mm. And all of my personal power was draining out of my body through this cord into the shooter in the form of anger. And forgiveness to me was a big set of scissors that cut the cord. It was a choice to forgive. That was the set of scissors that cut the cord to pain, really. So I wouldn't be dragging this person around with me in my mind, thinking about him all the time, angry. And it really did give me my personal power back, and I was able to move forward with much less anger. You know, it's interesting that you describe it that way because one of the many questions that I, I have about all this is um, it seems to me, first of all, every one of these relationships is something specific to itself. It's kind of sui generis. And so one of the things that characterizes your relationship and your situation is that the man in question is dead. Um, and, and so you maybe can think about cutting the umbilical cord. For other people in comparable situations who've had who have chosen forgiveness, sometimes the killer's still alive. Sometimes that 
relationship actually involves building an incredibly long and enduring relationship with the killer. Um, and, and, and I'm wondering for you, do, do you ever wonder about whether this would be harder or, or less difficult if Adam Lanza was still alive? Absolutely. I feel like it would be harder if he was alive. But I think you also have to think about the fact that forgiveness is not pardon, right? Forgiveness you do, I think, for yourself um, and and pardoning someone's actions um, is, is not the same. F- forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not condoning somebody's actions. It's not uh, holding them responsible for their actions. It's forgiving so that you can release your anger. Really, that's what it means for me. Pardon is something completely different. And, and yes, I do believe that if he was alive, it would be more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um Ruth Anderson, maybe you can say something about that, too. You looked at this in so many different environments, and it really is. We're talking about different kinds of equations here quite frequently. And sometimes we're talking about it in an almost institutional setting uh, if we're talking about South Africa. Sometimes we're talking about it in these very binary relationships between someone who has had something done terrible done to them and the person who's done it. And then in the case of Scarlett, that person isn't even around anymore. Are we always talking still about the same process, even though— the fact patterns are, are, are different? Well, it's uh, wonderful that you're bringing that up because I choose in my forgiveness courses that I offer not to forgive, or sorry, excuse me, not to define forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And I gain so much from that. What I, I'm interested in doing is creating a space, getting rid of the bad definitions, giving people material to read, world leaders material, mm-hmm. people like the Dalai Lama, Martin mm-hmm. Luther King Jr., Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, for them to read their writing what are the and, bad- then, and then to, to find, mm-hmm. define their own definition. What are the bad definitions? Well, um, Charlotte mentioned a couple of them already, forgetting, mm-hmm. condoning, excusing. Mm-hmm. That makes it impossible right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, let me bring Dr. Enright into this conversation, too. So you have attempted to kind of even look at this process and, and break it into constituent steps. Tell us about what you see as the, the stages of forgiveness. Well, I'm a researcher at the University of Wisconsin, and so I have to be very precise about what forgiveness is in order to research it and come up with steps. So first of all, I would say that forgiveness is a moral virtue. It's a a sense of goodness where you're actually giving mercy to those who have not had mercy on us. And it's a moral virtue like justice or patience or kindness. And yet it's a very heroic virtue, as you can see with Scarlett's story, where she could reach out to someone who brutalized her son and her family. And so when you Take a look at it as a moral virtue where you're trying to get rid of the resentment, as Scarlett had said, and offer this kind of mercy. There are four what I call phases that are described in my book with the American Psychological Association, The Forgiving Life. And the first phase is what we call uncovering. It's a period of anger, as Scarlett had said, and it's This uncovering phase is very difficult because it's the time when you look at how that injury has compromised your life with fatigue, with bewilderment, with perhaps a pessimistic worldview. 
And then people decide they have to do something about that to basically save their own life or the life of their family, which goes into the decision phase. And there we talk with people expressly about what they're getting into. And we say you're not going to be a doormat. You're not going to be lying down and let people walk on you. You may or may not reconcile with the one who hurts you because reconciliation is not a moral virtue where forgiveness is. But what you're going to be doing is struggling to get rid of resentment and offer the mercy of goodness in some way. Some people like that. Some people don't. It's their choice. Then comes the work phase of forgiveness where you begin cognitively in thinking exercises to see the woundedness in the other, to see the brokenness in the other, and especially to see the humanity in the other, what we call the inherent worth of all people. And that takes time. It can take months. It can take years. But if one is what I call on the road to becoming forgivingly fit, then seeing the other as a true human being, as a person, as I am, helps lessen that kind of anger that Scarlett was saying with that image of the umbilical cord. Once one thinks in this way, compassion for the other actually can happen, and that's when you can willingly bear the pain of what this person or what the, this group or people did so you don't throw your pain back to them or to others, such as your children or your partner, because we can displace anger if we don't do something about it. And the paradox of forgiveness is as we bear the pain and not try to inflict pain on the other and see them as a wounded human being like we all are and see the inherent worth in them, the paradox is we ourselves begin to heal. As Scarlett said, one of the consequences of exercising this moral virtue is we ourselves are healed. And our science shows that people who are strongly depressed, what we would call severely clinically depressed, can actually have the depression leave and stay away. That's when the psychological community started paying attention to the kind of work I and now others are doing. Anxiety goes down. Anger, what I call toxic anger, that truly can kill a person, goes down to where it's more manageable. And what I find fascinating about the forgiveness process is the person who's been wounded by the perpetrator, the one who has been wounded by them, the victim in other words, starts liking him or herself more. Because I see characteristically, it's a psychological phenomenon that I wish did not exist in the world. When people are demeaning to you, you end up not liking yourself. Forgiveness turns that around where when you see the inherent worth of the other, you say, hey, I have inherent worth as well. And you can stand up and face life again. Scarlett, does this all sound familiar and right to you? It absolutely does. Um, each and every step I went through, uh, the uncovering, obviously, the initial anger, uh, what happened, um, the, the choice that I made to not be a victim, uh, another victim, and then um, my ability to feel compassion for the shooter, understanding that he was really someone in a tremendous amount of pain to have inflicted such pain on others, and in doing so, be able to forgive him from from that compassionate point of view. So did he become a real person to you? Uh, obviously, he doesn't 
you don't have that that opportunity to to meet him as a real person, but did he become in your mind a real person? He's absolutely a real person. I've I've looked at his whole entire timeline. I've seen the points where he's uh, cried out for help as as only a child can do, not really raising their hand and saying help, but in other ways. And uh, and he really never got what he needed. And in that place, I I feel uh, sympathy and compassion for him and was able to forgive. And I'll add that um, another thing I've learned is that just because you make the choice to forgive, it doesn't mean that you don't slip back into anger because I'll have little um, little snippets of news articles or details of what happened in the in the school. And I can fall back into anger. Uh, and I know that I just need to take a deep breath and choose to forgive again. And so that process is kind of something that I've learned. It's not failure to forgive, um, but it's just do. It's just forgiving again. Um, I have one more question for you, and then I think it'll spread out nicely into uh, Dr. Henderson and, and Dr. Enright. Um, did it? Was it difficult? I mean, this is sort of something you could only do by yourself in some ways, and then there are people around you who are going through the same thing um, and they have to make their own decisions about it. Um, and, and from what I've read, anyway, that can be difficult. I mean, if you're ready to forgive Adam Lanza and some of the other people around, who are, are around you who knew and loved your son or knew and loved some of the other children at Sandy Hook aren't, that can be kind of a fractious and difficult journey. How, how did your interactions go with other people struggling with the same question? I've talked a lot about my forgiveness because I want to be perspective for other people so that they can uh, experience that in their lives as well. But I certainly completely understand the anger and rage also uh, when when something like this happens. And I know that it it takes people uh, deal with it differently. And I respect that. And uh, I've come to the realization that, you know, truly maybe forgiveness is not for everyone. Uh, I know that it's for me, and and I would hope that people would get to that point so they could find the relief that I found. But I understand that that not all people do. Um, Ruth Anderson, this can be a really difficult journey. As I was getting ready for the show, uh, I went and reread a story that I had remembered uh, about a man named the Reverend Walter Everett, uh, whose son Scott was uh, shot and killed in Bridgeport uh, by a man named Mike Carlucci. And uh, ultimately, after a year of kind of just sort of being uh, a spore, you know, trying to get over it, just trying to grieve. And um, uh, the Reverend Walter Everett wrote a letter to this man in prison. Uh, A correspondence uh, struck up. He then visited the man in prison and they became close. And when Mike Carlucci got out of prison, they traveled around and did presentations together and stayed very close. And I think Everett officiated at Carlucci's wedding and then his wife, that man's wife died and he did the funeral. It was that kind of thing. But the other part of that, and it's the reason I asked Scarlett Lewis this question was that the rest of his family couldn't do this and they didn't like it either. Uh, He ultimately got divorced, it seemed anyway, in the coverage of it because his wife couldn't forgive him for forgiving their son's killer. And there were other members of the family who had a similar reaction. How can you do this? How can your healing be more important than what the rest of us are going through? Because we really don't want to forgive this guy. How can you become close to this man? So, you know, people who go on this journey, they do it, don't do it in a vacuum, right? They're surrounded by other people. Absolutely. And it's natural that everyone is going to be in their own place and have their own process. Mm-hmm. A man I researched very closely, uh, David, whose 
daughter was, 19-year-old daughter was raped and murdered, and he needed to connect with the man who killed his daughter. And in fact, he ended up dedicating years, decades of actually, of his life going into the prisons and working with violent incarcerated men. Um, his wife, they they divorced, and his wife couldn't fathom that he needed to do that. And, um, you know, I, I think that it's, it, this is just how it is, that everyone has their own experience going through this very difficult thing. And, and so... Um uh, Dr. Robert Enright, this, you know, you talked about how there's, this is an essentially sort of a moral process. There's a moral component to it. But to the, some of the people watching, it, it may seem unfathomable to create a hierarchy of need and purpose in which um, healing by forgiving you know, some transgressor is so important that someone would put at risk the other relationships with living people around them. So how do you respond to that conundrum? Well, indeed, it is a conundrum, and we have to be honoring of where others are with regard to this process. But we cannot let them control us because if we do that, we're putting ourselves into a little cage. And where is the freedom there? Dialogue is very important in that sense, especially if the forgiver says, I am not dishonoring you. I am not judging you, and I'm certainly not condemning you if you choose not to forgive. And I would also add that someone could also say, your difficulty with this is not necessarily your final word. You may change your mind someday, and I'm certainly open to working with you. But to draw a hard line in the sand and say, because four people can't forgive, this is a democracy, and therefore I can't forgive, would actually be entrapping that person and not being able to heal at all. And where where is their life then? Um, we're going to take a break here pretty soon. I do want to say we're live here in the afternoon. We welcome your phone calls, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Maybe before we break, though, I want to, I'll get into one more area here. Um, and Scarlett, I'll, I'll start again with you. So most people will never have to experience what you've experienced, the, the depth of, of what you've had to experience. But most people have to confront some kind of challenge of forgiveness in, in their lives, and maybe a lot, you know, but maybe the worst that anybody goes through is a spouse who cheats on them or somebody, a partner in a business deal who turns out to be profoundly dishonest uh, and, and, and takes their money or betrays them. I mean, we all have to forgive people, and I think at all time we all, at some point or other, um, have to or, or hope to be forgiven. Um, do you, do, first of all, do you think that what you've been through has built up a muscle in you that would make it easier for you to forgive people maybe in, in less extreme situations? Well, yes, absolutely, mm-hmm. because uh, a blessing that came out of this tragedy is that, um, you know, I have great perspective on what's really important and what isn't, and a lot of stuff is not important, um, not even, you know, worth talking about forgiving. Um, but definitely it's something that I think about a lot now, um, I obviously want to be an example for my son. Uh, I want him to, and he did, uh, he made the choice to forgive as well. And I see the benefits that have happened in his life, the growth. When you go through tragedy, you you experience tremendous growth. And, uh, and yes, absolutely. I think that it absolutely uh, affects you on a cellular level. We know that now through 
through science, and it also rewires your brain so that um, in in future encounters, it becomes easier and easier. Um, and uh, Ruth, are we are we talking about the same process all the time? In other words, uh, I mean, I sort of asked this at the beginning, but I want to ask it again. Um, you know, most of us, uh, we're not going to go through these extreme situations where most people just are, are fortunate enough not to experience the kind of harm that we're going to be talking about a lot on the show today. But we all, bad things happen, you know? I mean, I said I'd quit drinking and then I didn't. And so I, I did this. I'm not, actually, I'm giving this as an example. Uh, or, you know, the ones that, or I, people cheat. People, people do bad things to other people all the time. Or, or people profoundly disappoint other people all the time. Or, or do, you know, do something that they said that they would never do. So, is this the same thing? Is forgiveness basically a, a currency that that exists in just different denominations? I I think I'm hesitant with this, and mm-hmm. the reason for that is because I think that there's a lot of if it's not forgiveness, it's forgiveness like mm-hmm. experience, and I think that there are three elements that I have found in the research that I've done from meeting a man who had leprosy and was incarcerated on the island of Molokai in Hawaii mm-hmm. um, to interpersonal forgiveness related to murder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can tell you the, the three elements that I have found, but I, I still love keeping the forgiveness definition open because I think we gain so much from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can tell you that when I have been hearing these stories for the past 15 years, these three elements seem to pop up again and again. One is deep listening, listening to oneself, so feeling the, the pain, feeling all the different ex- feelings, anger, hatred, um, and also then compassion, mm-hmm. you know, but but listening to oneself, and one can do that in a variety of ways. In my classes, uh, students keep journals. They write one-page responses to the readings that they're doing. Um, meditation, all of these things are great ways to listen to oneself. Being listened to will help another person listen to themselves. Because when the trauma first hits, it, there's all kinds of responses, including numbness. Um, listening for the transcendent is another. Is I would say crucial. And if I'm going to come anywhere near a forgive a, a definition of forgiveness for myself, I would say forgiveness is a spiritual experience of letting go with love. Mm. The, so back to the listening, listening to other people. First, listening to for the transcendent. However, the transcendent is understood. So I really care about keeping that open. This is not a religious um, uh, framework that I'm describing right now. But but it's the thing that's bigger than all of us, that gets accessed in this process, I have seen again and again in a, a very varied ways and various religious traditions. You know, I've, I've, I've heard people talk about it in religious ex- traditions or, or religious language and also in um, in in language that's generic to them, but it's spiritual. You can tell it's spiritual. And then finally, 
as a result of listening for the transcendent and being moved by the transcendent, a, some kind of grace comes in. And again, that that's a word that's so used, often used with in, in Christian terms. But I, I I welcome people to think about it in larger terms. It's it's when 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 the weight is lifted, mm. you know. So the, this this listening for the transcendent is is crucial. And then finally, now one's prepared to listen to other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I think deep listening is one of the elements I've seen. Humility, hugely important. Grounding. In this culture, we think we equate humility with humiliation. And so that's why we have to get rid of those bad definitions at the beginning. All right. And, we, I, I, hold on to your thought. I want to grab a break here. Uh, I'm going to get in trouble with the producer, who you know very well, uh, if I uh, don't take this break. Uh, Kelly, Kelsey Bissell's uh, producing the show today. We'll be back after this. So let it go and be amazed by what you see through eyes of grace. The prisoner that it really freezes you. Forgiveness. All right, uh, we're back. We're talking about forgiveness. Our guests include Scarlett Lewis. She's the mother of six-year-old Jesse Lewis, one of the victims of the Sandy Hook shooting. She's the founder of the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Foundation. Uh, also with me in studio, Dr. Ruth Henderson. She's presented her work on forgiveness before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa and in Germany, where she's been uh, part of creating programming on G- German-Jewish dialogue. She's taught forgiveness courses uh, in workshops in college campuses around New England and in prisons. Also joining us from uh, Wisconsin, Dr. Robert Enright, uh, who's books include The Forgiving Life and Forgiveness Therapy. Um, You know, I want to switch gears. I want to come back to the spiritual part of this because uh, I think there's another big piece of that that we need to talk about. But before we do that, I want to sort of talk about the norms and codes that are embedded in our society and whether they promote or militate against forgiveness. And, you know, Scarlett, one thing that all of us lived through together was 9-11. And and I think, you know, when you saw the woundedness of this nation after 9-11, somebody coming forward even in the first year, to say, no, I really think we have to forgive. I think we have to forgive the people who, who hijacked those planes. I think we have to, for, I, we have to forgive. We, ha- we can't move ahead as people or as a nation until we learn forgiveness. That kind of person would be, in many quarters, I think, denounced as soft, uh, bordering on traitorous, maybe. In other words, it, it, I didn't see in our national response a huge capacity to th- even begin thinking about what we're talking about today. And I didn't either for 9-11. And I even remember reading a book about an orphan genocide survivor from Rwanda. Uh, She went back and visited the man who had murdered her mother in prison, and she knelt down and forgave him. I read this book two years before Jesse died, and I thought to myself, if someone hurt my family, I would kill them. I would not forgive them. And flash forward, of course, two years, and Jesse was murdered. And I really, I think I realized then that I had to forgive for my own survival because I wanted to survive. And I I not only wanted to survive this, but I wanted to turn the tragedy into something that makes the world a better place to honor Jesse. And I knew doing that, uh, I wanted to be a good example for my son. And the only way for me to do that personally was to forgive. You know, Dr. Uh, Robert Enright, she's saying something that I think is important and really, really interesting here, which is that um, sometimes when it's this very, very 
intimate set of relationships that are very, very specific to a um, to a case like this one. Um, really, the the person who is uh, in the position of, of at least be potentially being the forgiver ultimately understands the way that Scarlett is describing right now that that it's just absolutely essential for any moment of healing. The guy that I was talking about before, the Reverend Walter Everett, he said the same thing. Even at his, as his family was decrying. What was happening, what he was doing, he was saying, I have to heal. I have to heal. And there's no way to do it without this. And it does seem with some of these larger stories, you know, I'm, I don't have to forgive al-Qaeda in order for me to live the rest of our li- my, rest of my life. I, I, I didn't lose anybody that I knew uh, well in, in that disaster. Um, I, you know, I can sort of think about it at a very general level. So is there something very specific to what we're talking about here, situations like Scarlet's where it, there is a kind of clockwork here that, that, that has to be set in motion for a person to heal, whereas in a lot of situations, there's no real demand to do it. Well, yes, if someone is late for a meeting, you can go on a good jog and you're over it. But when life pushes you to the wall, I have found in studying forgiveness since 1985, that there are very few options available for true, genuine, deep healing. For example, we did a study, Suzanne Friedman and I, she's a professor at the University of Northern Iowa, with incest survivors. That's one of the most horrendous injustices known to humankind, because someone who's supposed to be protecting a young girl is violating her. It's horrendous. And we had a ra- we, what we call a randomized clinical trial with 12 women, and we randomized six of them to a forgiveness condition, and the others waited until they went through a process I described earlier. You have to remember that most of these women sought therapy of every different kind under the sun, and they still came to us with clinical depression and high anxiety and low self-esteem and little hope for their future. They all at first said, I will never forgive the man. Are you sure you want me in the study? I thought that was very kind because they thought they were going to ruin our experiment. Mm -hmm. We said welcome. So they tried basically the last-ditch effort for healing, which was forgiveness, which really was their life preserver in a stormy sea. And at the end of one hour a week, one-on-one with Suzanne Friedman, the women went from clinically depressed to not depressed at all. And 14 months later, they were still not depressed. And so I have come to realize that while not everyone will accept forgiveness as a way to heal— And when they do not, I hope they have something good. But forgiveness seems to be the way out to be able to not just survive, but literally to be able to thrive. And I think you can hear that in Scarlett's voice. She is a thriver. It's forgiveness that does that and nothing else that I know of in the world. Ruth Anderson, it does seem that sometimes as these conversations, as the dialogues start up, now Dr. Enright right now is uh, describing more of a, a personal journey of one person working with a therapist. But one of the things that you've looked at are dialogues, dialogues between Germans and Jews, dialogues. And, and maybe a, a good story to tell is the story of Linda Beal in South Africa and her daughter, uh, Amy. Uh, t- tell the story of that case. Well, uh, Amy Beal was a Fulbright student living, working in South Africa. And um, she was working to help um, Nelson Mandela's vision 
tra- to help transform the the society away from it, uh, the apartheid regime that had brutalized so many people there. And um, she was in a taxi cab, um, and uh, there had been there all kinds of protests, so much unrest in the in the country, and some young guys had pulled her out of the taxi cab and beat her to death. And when uh, Linda Beale and her husband found out what had happened to her daughter because of who Linda was, they wanted to respond in a way that Linda would have felt was right. And it it stretched them. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission invited them to come and the young men had been caught. They were incarcerated and they were applying for amnesty. And they, Linda and, and her husband, he, they, they, they came and they, they participated in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, process and f- had a deep emotional, psychological and spiritual forgiveness experience and articulated it before that commission. And when I, uh, I, I, I had dinner with Linda once, um, and what she said to me, you see, they went on to make uh, to create a a nonprofit to help urban Black South Africans uh, develop their lives uh, through the arts, and these young men. They hired. They hired Amy Beale's murderers. Yeah, this this is a remarkable part of the story. So that they, they decided there was something wrong that could be readdressed, redressed through the work of this the foundation that they set up. I think. Meanwhile, two of those guys they wound up trying to do similar kinds of work in the townships, realizing that there was uh, they had the same feeling. There's something wrong here. People are still getting involved in some of the stuff that that turned us in, into people who did this terrible thing. Um, and when they realized that they were both doing that kind of stuff, yeah, the Beals hired two of these guys to who had who had killed their daughter to work on that foundation. I mean, to me, that's a pretty remarkable remarkable example of what happens when the conversation gets going. Well, it, it goes even further. Um, and this is a moment I'll never forget in my life. I was sitting with Linda and and she said, and she said to me, you know, most people aren't going to understand this. Mm-hmm. They're not, and I accept that they don't. They don't have to. But for me, those two boys feel like my sons mm-hmm. because they had gone through such a a process that most of us can't fathom, mm-hmm. and the bonds that got created as a result. And they protected her when she would go to a restaurant. South Africa is, a, you know, continues to be a a pretty rough place in a lot of places. So they would go in and scout the place out to make sure, you know, because they were very street smart and they, they were always looking out for her. And so she felt she had these sons. Mm-hmm. Um, Scarlett Lewis, I want to come back to your son for a second. I, my sense in, in, in reading uh, your work and reading about you is that you feel very spoken to by your son. Uh, there is very specifically the, the message that he left uh, on your kitchen message board uh, before he died. To, to what degree do you feel as though what you've done in the area of forgiveness is, in fact, somehow or other 
directed by those words uh, of his the nurturing, healing, love message that he wrote on that chalkboard. Yes, absolutely. He, Jesse, wrote three words on our kitchen chalkboard, nurturing, healing, love. I found them days after he was murdered. Um, and when you break down the meaning of those words, of course, those words are not in the in a vernacular of a six-year-old. They were phonetically spelled because he was just in first grade learning how to write. Uh, but when you break down the meaning of each of those words that are all three in the definition of compassion across all cultures, nurturing means loving kindness and gratitude. Healing literally means forgiveness. And love is compassion in action. That actually is an algorithm for choosing love. And I think that uh, that was a message that Jesse left uh, with a little bit of spiritual awareness that he was going to be leaving us, um, but also a message of uh, so so uh, comfort for his family and friends, but inspiration for the world. So that's really the message that I spread. That was helpful to me, uh, knowing that that's probably what he would want me to do. Uh, We had another situation where orphan genocide survivors from Rwanda reached out to JT, uh, wanted to share their experience via Skype. So they were live uh, with an interpreter, and they literally uh, told him, gave him a healing equation, how they healed from their experience. And it was the same as Jesse's message on the kitchen chalkboard. They said uh, it was gratitude, uh, which led them to be able to realize that they had to forgive those people that murdered their family or they'd be going down the same path of anger and destruction that they had gone down. And then it was the ability after they forgave to find meaning in their suffering and and spread that and use that to help other people as they were doing with JT. So here we have two very strong messages to forgive, and that definitely helped our process. JT is your other son. JT was 12 years old when uh, Jesse was murdered, yes, and he was Jesse's older brother. And, and he seems to, you know, you've been on a journey, but it seems like he's been kind of on a lot of this journey with you. And you've, I think, taken him a lot of places in, in order to, to what confront some of these questions. Actually, I was heading to, her, to a prison in Massachusetts to speak with 30 convicted felons um, who had all received a copy of my book, Nurturing Healing Love, two weeks in advance. JT didn't have school, so I thought it'd be a good idea to bring him along. And so we sat there in a, in a horseshoe of these men, and we talked about Uh, First of all, Jesse's courage in the classroom because he was instrumental in saving nine of his friends. And then we talked about his message, nurturing, healing, love, that being the way that you can choose love, the formula for choosing love. And uh, JT was able to share his experience. And it was really a beautiful thing because realizing that these men, uh, some of them were murderers, uh, some of them were gang members, and they all really were hungry for the knowledge and the ability to be able to choose love. And at the end of that two and a half hours, uh, the majority of them dedicated their lives to choosing love. And they were asking for pictures of Jesse so that when they saw his face, they could uh, choose choose a better path and, and remember to choose loving thoughts over angry thoughts. And it was really beautiful. So JT has been with me through a lot of my travels. He's heard my message. And he's actually on his own path with um, a, an organization that he started, which is Newtown Helps Rwanda. Dot org, where he reached back out to those orphan genocide survivors and raised money for them to go to university. He's now raised money for former children soldiers in Uganda and kids in Connecticut. So he's uh, learning, he's healing himself through forgiveness and also through being compassionate and being in service to others. 
Um, uh, Dr. Henderson, you've done a lot of your work teaching forgiveness courses in prisons as well. And I think for some people listening right now, they're thinking, why are these people going to prisons? Prisons are the place where people are who need to be forgiven. But why teach them uh, anything about forgiveness? Uh, They're not the ones who are going to be doing the forgiving. Well, self-forgiveness is super important. If if these men are going to get out and return to our society— we want to have them having more skill to manage things emotionally. And uh, the guilt and, and uh, the self-hatred, uh, the shame, all of those things, um, they it lives inside them. And they need to find ways to move beyond that so when they come out, they can choose love. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with a, a final segment here of our show about forgiveness. We were blessed. It's hard to give. It's hard to get. But everybody needs a little Today's show was produced by Kelsey Bissell and me, Kyone Wolf. Julia Pistel is our other intern today, and Katie Talarski is our executive producer. For show pages, articles, and photos, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, the nose breaks down the week in culture. Now, back to Colin. All right. This is the final segment of our show about forgiveness. And yes, congratulations to our intern, Kelsey Bissell, who pulled this whole show together. Uh, she's taken it very seriously, done a really good job. Our guests are uh, Dr. Robert Enright, whose books include The Forgiving Life and Forgiveness Therapy, Dr. Ruth Henderson, who teaches uh, courses on forgiveness, uh, Scarlett Lewis. Uh, she's the mother of six-year-old Jesse Lewis, uh, one of the victims of the Sandy Hook shooting and the founder of the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Foundation. Um, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Enright, um, in some ways, what we've been talking about here so far, to a certain degree, would fly in the face of certain therapeutic models and certain models of recovery, right? There are, are certain situations in which people are told, well, you're husband is a gambling addict or, you know, this person is toxic to you and you can't really move on unless you can cut your ties to this person. uh, And you absolutely, you just have to let that person go and keep that person out of your life until, unless that person changes. In other words, you know, we've all heard that, uh, that as a basic model, that this person has a problem that you can't possibly solve. And that problem is beginning to infect your family and the rest of your, your life. You've got to drive that person away or get away from that person. So, but it seems, as though what we're talking about here um, runs counter to that uh, a little bit? Or are these two ideas reconcilable? They're definitely reconcilable in the sense when you forgive, you do not necessarily automatically reconcile, but you do take a look at the other's weaknesses and you're open to the possibility of reconciling because of this notion of compassion. And you're probably going to wait longer in that relationship because the anger is going to go down so that the anger does not dominate your decisions. But ultimately, with the big difference between forgiveness therapy, let's say, and traditional therapy is that you think about right and wrong. 
you think about how to deal with that right and wrong in a compassionate, more loving way, as we have been discussing. And as you begin to see the other as a human being, what you ask of the person is going to be qualitatively different than if you're fuming and hate-filled. In other words, sometimes we can't live with them because we can't control our anger. Forgiveness does that. Or sometimes we want as uh, Shakespeare talked about, the pound of flesh. When you forgive, you don't want that anymore. You try to see what you need more realistically. And it is the case that you might end up not trusting a person in a particular area. Let's say if they're a compulsive gambler, you're going to watch your purse or your wallet. But you're not going to condemn that person as a person because they have weaknesses in certain areas. Yet, it is the case that some people refuse to listen. They think of your forgiveness as weakness and think they can get away with everything forever. And sometimes the other will not accept your love, in which case reconciliation is not possible. Um, uh, we Our time is limited. We've got a caller, uh, Derek, on the line, but rather than put him on the air, I think I'm just going to summarize what he has to say and, and give it, uh, hand it off to you, uh, Scarlett Lewis. So Derek's calling up saying, uh, you know, who, who does Scarlett Lewis give credit to that she can find that forgiveness? He, Derek, gives credit to God that it has to come uh, from outside yourself. Um, so I know you wanted to talk about the spiritual dimension of forgiveness. And, and, and maybe as you're talking about it, there are there're going to be people out there listening going wow well i'm i'm an atheist does that mean i i'm incapable of something like that well personally i am traditionally religious so um you know initially what did i know about forgiveness jesus says you forgive so that you're forgiven and that's really all that i knew um but that it doesn't limit it to that because what i found was that uh forgiveness was for myself um, and there and there is uh, for him, uh, you know, a passage in the Bible that does say um, Jesus was telling Matthew, I think uh, he was saying, how many times do we have to forgive? And Jesus said, well, you have to forgive 77 times seven. I remember being a little girl in Bible school and actually doing the math and saying, OK, 490. So if I forgive 490 times in my life, I'm good. And I think what I've learned now is that what Jesus meant was per transgression. And so you just have to continuously forgive. I may have to forgive 490 times or probably more for this transgression alone. I don't think that you have to be religious to forgive, obviously. Um, but for me, that was, you know, I, I do give credit to my faith. Absolutely. Um uh, Robert Enright, uh, very quickly here, you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about so far, and I, oh boy, I'm really running out of time. This is going to have to be kind of fast, but one of the things that would be good would be if uh, we were a little bit more prepared for this challenge before we faced it. Uh, maybe the wrong time to go shopping inside yourself for forgiveness is when you desperately need to forgive somebody. It would be good if you'd kind of worked out those muscles a little bit uh, beforehand. Is there anything like that? Can you go to a forgiveness gym uh, before you before you really need to forgive somebody? Yes, you can. It's called preventive education, and that's why I'm in Belfast, Northern Ireland, Liberia, Africa, and Galilee, Israel, working with children and adolescents. We have forgiveness curriculum guides for regular classroom teachers from age four, pre-kindergarten, all the way through grade 12, where the students learn in the calm of the classroom with their own teacher, where they look at story characters and novel characters, and they see how this pathway unfolds, whether it's good or bad, to choose for themselves whether to do this. And we've actually researched forgiveness education with, remember, not a 
clinical psychologists or a psychiatrist doing this, but with the regular classroom teacher and those students who can have about a half hour a week for about 12 weeks with Horton Hears a Who, for example, they reduce significantly in anger and some can actually increase in academic achievement. And all of these curriculum guides, if people are interested, can look at our website, internationalforgiveness.com. And it's all there, prepackaged, ready to go for preventive work so that when the storms of life come in adulthood, the student is now an adult and very ready. Um, you know, Ruth Anderson, this will have to be the last uh, thing on the show. But um, I also wonder sort of in that whole that sense, you've looked around at various cultures where, for example, South Africa, where there actually is a Truth and Re- Reconciliation Commission. Are some cultures just a little bit more ready generally to practice forgiveness just because of what the, the sort of bedrock norms are? Oh, what a difficult question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, well, you've got a whole minute to answer. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I I would say that um, I, you know, I can tell you our culture isn't one of them. Yeah. You know, I'm really comfortable saying that as an American. I think that um, I think any culture that f- focuses on the values of compassion, understanding, empathy, which is the third element that I mentioned that I have seen mm-hmm. um, in my journeys, uh, th- that that these, when these are valued, forgiveness, it, it for forgiveness can happen. Mm-hmm. And, and it, 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 it's like creating good soil. Yeah. I think, I think it's probably true that rather than being present in a society, it's probably present, present in a subculture. I mean, we know that the Amish, for example, are really good at this, but they're not a society. They're a religious culture. Um, all right. We're going to have to stop there. I want to thank everybody. Uh, Dr. Robert Enright. His books include Forgiving Life and Forgiveness Therapy. Dr. Ruth Henderson. She's presented her work on forgiveness all over the world and taught forgiveness courses and workshops on college campuses in New England and in prisons in Massachusetts. Uh, uh, Scarlett Lewis is the mother of six-year-old Jesse Lewis, one of the victims of the Sandy Hook shooting. She is the founder of the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Foundation, which seeks to empower children and individuals with the knowledge to choose love. And yes, that is the music of, uh, of Jimmy Green uh, in the background today as we end this conversation. <laughs>